0: Let's turn now for our first scripture reading to the Gospel of John, chapter fourteen. John chapter fourteen. We'll begin reading at verse nineteen and continue through verse thirty-one. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while being present with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You have heard me say to you, I am going away and coming back to you. If you love me, you would rejoice, because I said, I am going to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That the world may know that I love the Father, and as the Father gave me commandment, so I do. Arise, let us go from here. And then turning over to our text, the last two verses of Ephesians. Ephesians 6, verses 23 and 24. Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Amen. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've come this morning to the closing words of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And they are words of of benediction or blessing and... Uh, They are words that give assurance of God's peace and God's love and God's grace. And they also include a description of those who are the recipients of God's saving grace. They're described as those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. And this morning we want to give a special attention uh, to this rather unique feature of uh, Of this blessing, this uh benediction with which Paul concludes his letter to the ephesians it's a uh, a unique feature that singles out in this particular way those who are the blessed by God. It makes clear that God's blessing is not uh indiscriminate uh not everyone who sneezes is blessed by God, more importantly, not everyone uh who Claims to believe in God is necessarily blessed by God. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is blessed by God. Not everyone who is sincere about their religion. There are a lot of sincere people about a lot of different kinds of religions. But that sincerity and their belief in God after some manner does not ensure that they're certainly going to go to heaven because they're religious people and they believe in God after a manner, and they're serious. No, the Bible indeed gives lavish and rich comfort. But it gives this comfort to believers. And to be very blunt, to be very direct, the Bible gives no comfort to unbelievers. The Bible gives no comfort to those who are dead in trespasses and sin and still in their unbelief. Now we must follow that up by saying that the Bible does, without distinction, without discrimination, point all to the one and only way of comfort in our Lord Jesus Christ. But yet it distinguishes between those who possess saving grace and those who do not, or do not yet. And we have that kind of distinction uh, in this benediction before us. There is the assurance of grace to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. Those who love our Lord Jesus Christ are assured of grace. That's our theme uh, from our text this morning. And we want to begin by considering how love for Christ is indeed joined in our text with God's saving blessing. God's peace and God's love come first. Uh, Verse 23 comes before verse 24. And God's love and God's peace always comes before our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Love for Christ is the result of God's saving love for sinners. It is the fruit of such saving love. Now this book, as you recall from way back when we began our study of Ephesians, begins with blessing, the language of blessing God, of speaking well of God. That's what blessing means. And the book begins with speaking well of God, and it does so in the form of doxology, It does so in the form of praise. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Speaking well of God. That's how the book begins. And it begins by speaking well of God because of the glory of His grace in Christ. And now the book ends with God's blessing on those recipients of such grace. It refers back, you might say it re- recaps, it recapitulates uh, the blessings that had been expounded in great detail in the letter itself. And in the closing words, we are briefly reminded of the riches of those blessings that we learned of in the content of this letter. We learned of peace. Peace from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. It might be said that there's nothing more miserable than a lack of peace. Peace is such a tremendous blessing of grace. It is a unique, distinguishing mercy. The true peace that comes from God. It is a peace that is created. It is a peace that... uh, owes its uh, origin, its existence, to God's work. We're reminded of that even in the language of of the Old Testament uh, book of Isaiah, where in the uh, 7th chapter we read these words, I create, that is God, I create the fruit of the lips. And the fruit of the lips is uh, described in the New Testament in terms of uh, thanksgiving, the sacrifice of praise, And God creates the fruit of the lips. And the way he does so is through the announcement of peace. The next words say, peace, peace to him who is far off and to him who is near, says the Lord. And I will heal him. You recognize that language at all? Peace to him who is far off and to him who is near. Well, you may recall that that's very similar to the language that we heard in chapter 2 of this letter to the Ephesians where we learn that Christ is our peace and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Christ made peace through the blood of his cross, reconciling sinners to God and in doing so reconciling them to one another. And the greatest misery of this world is its lack of true peace with God and true peace with our neighbor. No, that's just one way of describing the fact that by nature we are inclined to hate God rather than be at peace with him. By nature, we are at enmity with him. And by nature, we're inclined to hate one another. And that's on display everywhere, every day. And we've been horrified by the display of such hatred in the past weeks. The lack of peace among peoples, among nations. And you know, brothers and sisters, there's no ultimate solution to that lack of peace among nations other than the gospel of peace. Oh yes, sometimes peace can and should be achieved by by military action. No question about it. God has entrusted the sword to the powers that be so that they might... Uh, punish those who do evil, and reward those who do well. And a measure of peace sometimes must be secured by military action. And a measure of peace can sometimes be uh, secured by by uh, negotiation and by treaties. But at best, that kind of peace among nations involves a measure of order and a measure of security, a measure of safety for those who do well, Protecting the innocent, but that doesn't really create the kinds of peace that really torments the lives of people. It's very limited. Only in Christ is there true peace established as, as described in, uh, in, in Ephesians 2 or Isaiah 57. But the wicked are like the troubled sea, it goes on to say, when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. There is no true peace among nations. Is there real peace, characteristically, typically, between spouses and in families? All these relationships are racked and troubled by conflict and discord. This lack of peace is the torment of the soul. It's the unrest of conscience, the gnawing anxiety be- behind so much discord, so much conflict with oneself as well as with others. Christ is our peace. That's the language of chapter 2. Because he has reconciled us to God. And that's a shared peace. And it's a peace that is continually sustained by God's ongoing provision of grace. And that's what's assured to us in this benediction. Peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. That comes first. We also have love as those who have first received love. Peace to the brethren and love from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let let me remind you of uh, the language of chapter 2 again, earlier in the chapter, where it says... God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Have you been made alive? Are you alive to the things of God? Is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ real to your heart? Do you call upon him? Do you trust him? What's the explanation for that? You might put it this way. You might put it very personally and individually. Because of his great love with which he loved me. He made me alive in Christ. Otherwise I'd be dead in trespasses and sins. Even that, that language is worth just repeating to yourself, reflecting upon. Because of his great love. The God who is rich in mercy... A mercy that moves him to demonstrate it and display it in saving love. Great love. The great love with which he loved me. So he made us alive in Christ. Let me refresh you with the recollection of, uh, the great goal and prayer of, uh, of Paul, that prayer which the Holy Spirit inspires in chapter 3, verse 17 and following, where he prays that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. We might say that all that is really needed for us to receive a continual supply of soul-quickening, heart-warming, heart-enlarging love is to continue to exercise faith in the love of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ for us. You see, that's what, that's what Paul is, is assuring us as believers, such a continuous supply of peace, such a continuous supply of love from the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, with faith, right? He includes that, right? Another gift of God, whereby these riches have become ours, whereby we believe that indeed these treasures of mercy are found in Christ. And we've received them as empty in ourselves, as nothing to achieve, but as sinners who are but receivers of grace. We're not achievers, we are receivers. And that comes first. And that's only then followed by the assurance of more grace, who are described in terms of their response, their knowledge of such peace and love. And that is evident in their love for the Lord Jesus. See, love for Christ is a distinguishing mark of Christians. We might ask the question, how, how does the Bible describe true believers in a most concise, simple way? And that, that question could be answered in different ways. They're described as those who believe. Uh, they're described as those who have been born again. They are described as those who have new life. They've been made alive. They are described as those who follow Christ. They hear His voice. They follow Him. So there are a number of ways in which the Bible describes Christians. But one very important way that is repeated often in Scripture is that they love the Lord. In fact, this is so important that the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 16.22 also very close to the uh, concluding words of his epistle says, if anyone does not love our Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. What a withering charge. What a horrible inj- indictment. Accursed are those who do not love the Lord Jesus. Think of the form for profession of faith. It's a profession of faith. You might say it's a profession of love as well. Because we're asked not only whether we, we believe from the heart the, the doctrine of the Old and the New Testament and as uh, taught in this Christian church and the articles of the Christian faith to be the true and complete uh, doctrine, but we're also asked, do you declare that you love the Lord? When we sing, I love the Lord because you heard my voice in supplication, are you, do you, are you listening to yourself? Do you really believe that? Is that a confession of your heart? Remember, Jesus repeated a question to Peter when he restored him uh, from his threefold denial of Jesus. He asked him three times, Simon Peter, son of Jonah, do you love me? Do you love me? In a way, that's more significant. Do you promise never to deny me again? Will you forever be loyal to me from now on? You might say, well, yeah, those things are really included, but Jesus zeroes in on this matter of his love for the Savior. Do you love the Lord? I realize that some Christians, some Christians may find that question a little bit unsettling. And sometimes the reason for that is true humility and a true knowledge of their sin and weakness. In a sense, they, they could probably ask uh, the question, do you fear the Lord? It might be easier for them to do that. It might even be easier for them to say, do you trust in the Lord? Yeah, they do trust in the Lord. They call upon Him. They pray to Him. They seek Him. But when they're asked, do you love the Lord? They feel, oh, my love is so inadequate. It's so meager and it's so poor. Do I really dare to say that I love the Lord? There's a sense in which it's proper for people to have that kind of Humility before such a question as this. We've heard some time ago that in a way it's proper to have that kind of humility and trembling before the question, do you believe in God? Because if we really believe in God, we recognize we ought to, that that ought to be life transforming. And so it is, if we dare to say we love the Lord Jesus Christ, we recognize that that's not some trite little confession. It's not some sentimental statement. That's a testimony of our relationship to the Lord, that we love Him. And we instinctively realize that if that love is real, it's got to show. You know, some people might be quick to answer this kind of a question in a shallow way. And that's because they have a shallow view of the Lord. There are many people that regard Jesus as, as kind of a, a, a non-judgmental friend who's always there for me. And I think we ought to observe and recognize and be a little bit unhappy with the way among so many professing Christians, the name of our Lord is exclusively, it seems, reduced to the name Jesus. And again, I've addressed this before, and I always feel some misgivings about it because how sweet the name of Jesus sounds in a believer's ear. We love Jesus Christ, and we use the name Jesus. By itself. But that doesn't mean that our faith is reduced to a relationship with Jesus. The language of our text is is quite different, isn't it? Peace to the brethren and love with faith from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is our Lord Jesus Christ whom we love. He is the Lord. He has been exalted far above all principality and power and every name that is named. And He has had over all things for the church. And He is the one who gave Himself a sacrifice and an offering for our sins so that we might be forgiven and restored to God. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He is the Christ who fulfills those Old Testament Offices that dimly foreshadowed the greatness of his person and what he would do. And we love this Lord. We love this Christ. We love Jesus, who is the Savior of sinners. Some, if they're honest, don't really want to take this subject seriously. Because they don't love the Lord. Or really even want to in any real meaningful way. Oh, they love their lives, they love their friends, they love their entertainments and pleasures and recreations. But the Lord has no real place in the deepest desires, the deepest aspirations of their hearts. Our text describes this love as sincere or uncorrupted, unhypocritical, genuine. It's a love of loyalty and true affection. And it's a love that becomes evident. If you love me, keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. My unbelieving friend this morning, you really need nothing more to convict you of your sin and of your miserable and lost condition than your failure to love the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take that to heart, if you know what it means, I quoted the summary of the law this morning, right? After we heard the Ten Commandments, I quoted Jesus, who quoted the Old Testament, who said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first and the great commandment. You know what that means, don't you? It means that you must love the Lord Jesus Christ with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, no less than you are to love the Father and love the Holy Spirit, the one true and eternal God, with the absolute devotion and consecration of your lives. That's what continually convicts Christians of their sin and their need for a Savior, their failure to love God. You don't have to be an overtly wicked person, irreligious to be condemned by the holy law of God, all you need is to come to grips with the fact that you do not love the Lord Jesus. You know, and I say that, and I try to say it as pointedly as I can, not simply to expose you, certainly not to leave you in despair, but to use the law as it was intended to expose the reality of sin so that you might come to this very Christ whom you fail to love. And you might confess that you failed to love Him and that you can't love Him. You don't and you won't. Unless He makes you alive. Unless He opens your mind and heart. Unless He saves you from yourself. You know that every Christian is saved from themselves. Every Christian is saved from their failure to love the Lord as they ought. Now that ought to be a great comfort to you because the fact that you don't love the Lord doesn't make you a special kind of sinner. It just shows that you're the ordinary kind of sinner who fails to love God. And be honest about it. Face it. And repent. Feel badly about it. And pray for God's forgiveness and for the work of His Spirit in your heart. And He'll hear your cry. And He'll save you from your guilt. And He'll teach you to love the one who has so loved you. Those who love the Lord... However meeker, however small, however inadequate as they know, take comfort in God's grace to you. Those who love Christ are assured of more grace. God's favor rests upon all those who love his son. In John 16, we, we read, uh, In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I shall pray the Father for you, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me. And I believe that I came forth from God. Never think of the father as if he's the hostile one. As he's the one who's kind of against you. And Jesus kind of gets in between. And he's the mediator. But God doesn't really love you. No, no. Believers are to know that the father loves them. It's the father who sent his son. And those who believe that he came from God. And those who love him. Well, God delights in those who so receive and love his son. The greatest of gifts. And this is in the context of the assurance of receiving what we ask in prayer. And that day you will ask in my name. We ask in the name of the Savior, as those who trust in him and love him. And uh, we can be confident that God hears our prayers because we have this testimony of his grace in our own hearts. The assurance of our text is wide. It's as wide as the description that's given. And it's very expansive. It's like it's all-inclusive. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ in sincerity. In other words, it's a, a blessing. It's a, a, a benediction uh, that is to every believer in every congregation of our Lord in every place. It's beyond the specific congregation there in in Ephesus. God knows all those who love him and he promises grace to them. In Psalm 91, uh, we, we hear the words of God, Because he has set his love upon me, therefore I will deliver him. I will set him on high, because he has known my name. He shall call upon me, and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. Now, I believe that this is a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that cannot be properly understood uh, apart from Christ. When when Satan quotes it, he shall give his angels charge over you. He probably knew that better than a lot of uh, modern readers might know it and think it only describes us. Well, it describes us, but first of all, uh, it describes the Lord Jesus Christ who has set his love upon the Father like none of us ever have. But in Christ, we also hear these promises of God's protection the answer to our prayers, the assurance of eternal life in Christ. And in Christ, we have also set our love upon God because he so loved us. And those who love our Lord Jesus Christ, despite misgivings and the conviction of the meagerness, the inadequacy of that love, they also may know themselves as those who love the Lord. Actually, the Canons of Dort, which we might associate with a rather intellectual, heady uh, kind of confession of deep doctrine that's really way t- too far beyond us to give our attention to. No, no, it's in the Canons of Dort that we find these little jewels, like like Article 13, after simply after describing the incomprehensible nature of of regeneration how god gives life to those who are dead in and trespass and sins and it describes it in a marvelous way in uh, article 12 but then it goes on in article 13 and it says in this life believers cannot fully understand the way in which this work occurs meanwhile they rest content with knowing and experiencing that by this grace of god they do believe with the heart And love their savior. We know not how this wondrous grace God imparts to us. There's mystery and miracle in bringing sinners to life. But we know that we trust in him. We know that we love him. We can know ourselves. Now indeed, our love can cool and falter. And then we may be doubtful and troubled. We need to beware of the evil days in which we live in which lawlessness abounds, and in which the love of many will grow cold. We need to realize that we can be strong in many ways. We can be strong in labor, in service, in the church. We can be strong in doctrine. We can be strong in discipline. And be weak in our love for the Lord. And you know how we know this? We know it through another letter to the church in Ephesus. We know it from the words of our Lord Jesus Christ in in uh, Revelation chapter 2, where the angel, the messenger of the church is addressed. And the church is commended in many ways. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. Good for you. You expose these false teachers. They're liars. And you, you, you expose that by testing them and their beliefs. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not, and have not become weary. They're commended for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, that's the kind of passage that leads each one of us to say, Lord, be merciful to me. Lord, renew my love for you. Lord, don't let me be content with sound doctrine and all kinds of activities in the church. Quicken me in love for you. Let this promise of grace arouse us to grow in love, knowing it's not a matter of merit. Remember, peace and love. From God and our Lord Jesus Christ comes first. So it's not a matter of merit, but it is an encouragement from the order of God's working. We read that. We read that in in John chapter 14, where Jesus said, he who has my words and, or he who has my commandments and keeps them is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Jesus uh, explained that there is a correlation between our consecration to his will and our experience of his love and a deeper a sense of the majesty and the greatness of the Savior. We ought not to separate these things. And in that connection, we should remember that of those commandments, six of them have to do with our relationship with our neighbor. In other words, don't simply try to bask in God's love individually and privately and personally. Somehow apart from your relationship with others. Remember what, uh, what first John says in, in that connection in, in chapter four, where it says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. Now we might think, well, what's the connection between these two ideas? John is addressing the fact that our relationship with God is not simply uh, immediate. It's not simply uh, Jesus and me, and it's not to be sought in terms of some kind of ecstatic experience or some kind of vision of God that is mystical. No, John brings us down to earth, in, a, in effect, to say, you want to know the love of God? Practice love in your relationships with others. Because God shows his love by loving action, even to the unlovely. God's love is demonstrated in acts of kindness and mercy and grace. And so you want that love of God to come to maturity and, uh, development in your life? Well, then you love like God loves. This is His commandment. That he who loves God must love his brother also. And you know, sometimes that's the, the, the most, um, effective medicine that discouraged and depressed Christians can take. Because it's the nature of our 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 spiritual depressions is to be self-focused. Sometimes the best thing for our spiritual health is to go out, do something loving, gracious, and kind for others. And you might discover the experience and feeling of God's love as you exercise it towards others, and are assured of his love for you in the process. He who has my commandments and keeps them. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. In other words, a deepening fellowship with the Father and with the Son through the Holy Spirit is also uh, along the pathway of walking in love also towards others. Amen.